There are now some 40 million handguns. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the GVP cast. This is your one and only host, Chad, and I'm so excited that you're here for another week with us and a week where we finally get to talk about some current events. I feel like I did a series of podcasts where I got to talk a little bit about kind of the major Supreme Court cases that got us to where we are today, and I'm really excited to have this conversation today because it's about something that happened quite recently and is something new that I think not a lot of people know too many details about. A lot of people that I've spoken to know about it, but aren't really sure of the details or what it entails or what it may do or what it may not do. So today's topic is President Biden's newly announced Office for Gun Violence Prevention. Now, that's not its official title, but that's how it's being referred to in a lot of news clippings and press releases and things that I've seen from news organizations seem to indicate that it's just an office for gun violence prevention. But we'll talk a little bit about where this office actually fits into the scheme of the executive branch, what powers it may have, who's involved and what kind of their mandate is under Joe Biden's uh, most recent executive orders. So a little bit of background on this official White House Office for Gun Violence Prevention. This new office was officially announced at a ceremony in the White House Rose Garden on Friday, September 22nd, 2023, at a ceremony in which both Vice President Kamala Harris and Congressman Maxwell Frost from Florida were also present. And just from being kind of in the the gun violence prevention sphere on Twitter and social media and things, I was very excited to see that a number of guests who are really movers and shakers in the GVP community were invited to attend that event. And that just warms my heart and makes me happy. It makes me feel like the people that are really putting their all into this work at least get a chance to be there for these major events for successes in the movement. I think it's also important to note here that Congressman Frost was, at one point, beyond just being the first Gen Z member of Congress, he was the National Organizing Director of March for Our Lives, which is a national gun violence prevention advocacy organization that is primarily youth-led and that was created in the wake of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in Parkland, Florida. Oddly enough, for those of you who may be tuned into electoral politics, there was a Republican presidential primary debate last night and this issue of mass shootings got one question. Well, the issue of gun violence got one question in the entire debate, and only one candidate was able to answer anything about it, and then everyone moved on, which was disappointing to me personally. But then at a later point when former Vice President Mike Pence was called on, he said, oh, you know, I want to go back to the mass shooting question. And he came out with this very um, interesting position that seemed to be like very pro-death penalty for mass shooters, which was an interesting take and gets to the question of what does deterrence look like, but also the the view that we need to just, uh, the view that the death penalty is the appropriate punishment for mass shooters really only impacts it to the degree that everyday people have to uh, think about it, because traditionally, Only mass shootings are the things that make the news and the headlines and stay in the public consciousness for a few days. And so if the immediate retribution was the death penalty for these mass shooters, 
then in theory that might deter future ones from committing those acts. But as I hope everyone knows, is that mass shootings account for very a small number of the firearm-related deaths in this country every year. And while it is very important that we have those conversations, and they understandably do garner a lot of media attention, it's really important to focus on the fact that not all gun violence is restricted to automatic or semi-automatic weapons and mass shootings. So that was just an interesting take from former Vice President Mike Pence that we should just kind of be executing mass shooters as a deterrent method. I digress. Perhaps we can uh, get into a conversation about that another day. But back to the new Office for Gun Violence Prevention. President Biden was forced to take executive action on this issue because Congress pretty much just refuses to act in any sort of meaningful way. And as a little bit of background, let's talk about what we mean by that. So we all know from things like Schoolhouse Rock or our fifth grade civics class uh, that there are three branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branches. Now, the executive branch is the president and the vice president and everything under their purview, which in our modern era has come to include the administrative state. So all the federal agencies such as the Department of Transportation, the Department of Education, the Department of Energy, the Department of Justice, et cetera, et cetera, Department of State. Those are all now in the executive branch. Now, the legislative branch is pretty easy. It is the United States Senate and the United States House of Representatives, our elected officials who take care of most of the legislating that goes on in this country when it comes to creating laws and policies. And then there's the judicial branch, which is the courts, which is the mechanism for kind of checking the power of the other branches. And currently there's a little debate about how much the other branches can check the power of the judicial branch. Isn't that ironic? So with that understanding kind of, of the three branches of government, this new office was created by Joe Biden, not through any type of legislative action. And so it exists within the executive branch of the government. And it's actually right within the White House itself. It is not a, well, to my knowledge, we'll have to see if there is litigation about this or more details. But to my knowledge, it is not any sort of independent agency. It is just an office within the White House. So you may be wondering who is involved with this office. That's a great question. It is being led by Vice President Kamala Harris. So I'll be curious how active her role is in this moving forward and how publicly this is kind of part of her bread and butter issues that she's now kind of overseeing. Also involved in this office is Stephanie Feldman, who is a longtime policy advisor to President Biden on gun violence prevention. And Stephanie Feldman is going to serve as the director of this office of gun violence prevention and will be joined by advocates Greg Jackson and Rob Wilcox, who will join the administration as deputy directors of the office of gun violence prevention. So it'll be headed by Kamala Harris. Stephanie Feldman will be the director and Greg Jackson and Rob Wilcox will be these two deputy directors. So what will this office do? Good question. President Biden, in his remarks last Friday announcing the office, uh, kind of articulated that the office will have four main responsibilities. The first responsibility that he noted was enforcement of the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. Now, if you will all recall, that was a major piece of legislation, the first significant piece of gun violence prevention legislation passed through Congress in years. Uh, and it passed last year. And the terms of it were a little, what exactly it entailed were perhaps a little unclear. So I'm going to recap the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, just so we're all on the same page in terms of our understanding of what this act entails, what it mandates and what perhaps this new office will be doing in order to best enforce it. Here are some of the key provisions of the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. So the first thing that the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act does is that it enhances background checks for buyers of firearms under the age of 21. 
so that it establishes an enhanced background check process and up to a three business day investigative period for buyers under the age of 21 that will require checking with state law enforcement, local law enforcement, and either state or local courts before a sale proceeds. This strengthens current laws that already stop a gun dealer from selling a handgun to a person under 21 and any gun to a person under 18. The Bipartisan Safer Communities Act also provides support for state red flag laws. Now, these are the type of laws that became quite popular after the Parkland shooting, and they were essentially laws that enhanced the process where if an individual is flagged via red flag as being potentially a harm to themselves or others, whether that be through social media posts, things they've said, things they've written, these red flag laws, in theory, are supposed to help kind of, f for lack of a better word, flag those people in the system so that way they cannot purchase firearms, at least for X period of time. And so in providing support for this, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act provides $750 million in sort of some desperately needed funding over the next five years to support crisis intervention services, including the actual implementation of these state red flag laws. And the bill also unlocks an additional well-established existing funding system to support the implementation of red flag laws. So this basically means, you know, these red flag laws are pretty agreeable across party lines. I think I rarely hear a pro-gun argument that says that red flag laws don't do any good. Some may argue that they are unnecessary, but if an individual who is perceived to be a, a threat to themselves or others, having the ability to restrict that person's purchasing of firearms seems pretty significant. And as far as I can tell, is pretty popular amongst individuals of kind of all political ideologies. So unlocking this money and providing a little bit more money to these services should be helpful in ensuring they are actually implemented. And now this is one of those things where we've been talking about red flag laws for a while, but they are relatively new and we are not really sure how they pan out in the long run. And so this, this increased funding is really going to help us fully implement these programs and test out whether they are a successful deterrent and whether they bring down incidents of gun violence, which I guess is kind of yet to be seen, but I'm glad that the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act did allocate some funds for this. The Bipartisan Safer Communities Act also continues the effort of disarming domestic abusers. So it expands the current prohibition, preventing convicted domestic abusers from buying or possessing guns to include not only those who abuse their spouses, but also those who abuse their current or recent dating partners. Now, this is one part of the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act that I wish went a little bit further. There are some states that have domestic violence restraining order restrictions on firearms. So essentially, if someone has taken out a domestic violence restraining order against you, you cannot purchase a firearm. That is what's going to be at issue in an upcoming Supreme Court case, United States versus Rahimi. And I believe laws like that are probably more effective at prohibiting likely domestic abusers or confirmed domestic abusers from having access to firearms. But expanding this to include current or recent dating partners beyond actual spouses is still an excellent first step because there is so much intimate partner violence and gun violence that occurs between two individuals who may not have been married, but that doesn't at all extinguish the severity of the domestic abuse between the pair, and it also does not decrease the severity of the use of gun violence in those interactions. The Bipartisan Safer Communities Act also clarifies who must run a background check. So it clarifies existing law and what it means to be, quote, engaged in the business of selling firearms so that it is clearer when unlicensed people selling guns to strangers are required to obtain a federal firearms license and run background checks on all. 
overall sales. So this is one of the, the bigger loopholes that I would say some folks in the gun manufacturing and selling industry try to get around is playing into the vagueness of the phrase engaged in the business of selling firearms. So if I am an individual just selling one firearm to someone else, am I really, quote, engaged in the business of selling firearms? Perhaps not. So what the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act does is it makes it clear that even if I, as an individual, am selling my firearm to another individual, I still have to obtain a federal firearms license and run a background check on all sales that I do. I can't just sell the gun to my neighbor for funsies. The act also cracks down on gun trafficking by establishing the first ever federal laws against interstate gun trafficking and straw purchasing to stop the flow of illegal guns into cities. Now, this is a really big issue. Uh, straw purchases are really a rampant issue in a lot of America. I have particularly noted in a lot of Midwestern states this is an issue. That's not to say that it is exclusive to Midwestern states, but most of my work over the past several years has been in Midwestern states. And so these are just happens to be the point of reference that I have. But there are a number of retailers who at least it seems from the facts alleged in some of these cases, we're pretty negligent in trying to prevent straw purchasers. And now a straw purchaser, maybe a straw purchaser is best described through an example. So a straw purchase would be me and my friend, Tim. We're in the car and Tim's like, oh, I really want a gun, but because of XYZ, whether he's a felon or because of whatever reason, he can't buy a gun. I forgot my license at home, uh, I, whatever it may be. He says, Chad, can you buy me a gun? And I say, okay, I, I guess. Well, like, okay, I wouldn't say yes, but in this fictitious scenario, I say yes. And I say, okay, like, what kind of gun do you want? He's like, okay, well, just uh, like FaceTime me when you're in there and show me the guns, then I'll tell you which one and then you buy it. And I say, okay. And so then I go into the store and I start talking and I'm like, this is so much fun. I love guns or something. And then I call my friend on FaceTime, Tim, and we look at the guns together, ostensibly, and the person working the gun counter sees all of this, and then I hang up with Tim, and I'm like, I'm gonna take this one. And they say, okay, great, and I put down on all the forms that it is my gun, and it's for me, and so they run the background check on me. That is a straw purchase. It is a purchase made by someone for someone else. And, and it is increasingly becoming the case that gun sellers are being sort of complicit in this and ignoring some clear signs of straw sales, because at the end of the day, we don't know why, at least in my example, why Tim was unable to obtain a firearm. And there may have been a really good reason for it. And so providing him with that firearm is a really, really, really bad idea. These types of illegal guns are also more often used in crime than anything else. They are often recovered at crime scenes. And so what the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act does is establish a law that prohibits interstate gun trafficking and straw purchasing, which was done in an effort to kind of curb this flow of illegal guns into not only our cities. I don't, I don't like that the, the language in the bill said cities or that at least in the press releases about the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act talks mostly about guns into cities, but these guns are being used across the country in rural areas, urban areas, cities, towns, suburban towns. I promise you that straw purchases and illegal guns have made their way into these communities and wreaked havoc. The Bipartisan Safer Communities Act also funds community violence intervention, which I think is really important because this bill includes $250 million in dedicated funding for evidence-informed community-based violence intervention programs that have been proven to reduce gun violence in the most effective communities using a public health approach. Now, these types of community interventions are really important because I think at the root of a lot of crime, and this is not specific to 
gun violence, but the root of a lot of crime is the fact that people's basic needs are not being met. And so they are turning to other ways to meet those needs, whether that is feeding their family, whether that is finding work, whether that is maintaining a steady stream of income, whether that is feeling safe in their home. There are people whose basic needs are not being met, and they are turning to things like gun violence to try to beat the system and get the things that they need. Now, if we just reformed the system to give people their basic needs, I'm not saying that this would eliminate all gun violence entirely, but I do think that these types of community-based violence intervention programs that get more at the root cause of gun violence are largely more effective than any type of like government buyback program would be in the immediacy. I think this is a really important place to start. And so the fact that there's $250 million in dedicated funding for these types of community-based violence intervention programs is really, really important. And my hope is that even if the the, the benefits of these community-based violence intervention programs, even if it's not readily available for a few years, I, I hope that we stick with these because I do think it would take a few years for then the root causes to permeate their way into the, the actual levels of crime. Um, it's not like we can send in a bunch of people to do community <laughs> intervention and hope that the next day suddenly every community is reformed. I think that's just a little unrealistic. What the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act does is it provides critical resources to expand community mental health services for children and families, funds school-based mental health and supportive services, invests in telehealth mental health services to expand access, particularly in areas where there might not be that many in-person mental health services for individuals, and it also invests in community crisis intervention programs, which we just sort of talked about before. And finally, just one last thing about the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act is that it provides additional school safety funding, because whether we like it or not, the incidents of gun violence that really make the news and grip people are quite often those involving schools. And it is a sad reality that they are a frequent target of these mass shooting incidents. And, and so the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act funds school violence prevention efforts, including training, and then also makes sure that these safety measures are implemented appropriately at primary and secondary schools. So that was just kind of a recap of the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, because I feel like at least at the time that it was passed, I didn't hear a lot of people going really into the details of what the money and the purpose in that bill was really aimed at. And so I just wanted to make sure we were all on the same page for that. So I had gone through all of that just to say that the first responsibility of this new White House Office for Gun Violence Prevention is going to be to enforce the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which I think is great. It's, it's very rare that a new law gets a very specific task force in the White House dedicated to ensuring its implementation. I think that is a step in the right direction. Now, the second mandate of this new Office for Gun Violence Prevention is to coordinate more support for survivors, families, and communities affected by gun violence. So this sounds a bit amorphous, but he clarified a few things that might mean. So he compared it essentially to the way that FEMA responds to natural disasters, presumably meaning that after incidents of gun violence, this new office could provide support to communities through mental health care and financial assistance and resources in the same way that FEMA can respond to natural disasters and bring people the resources that they need while they rebuild. And President Biden even said uh, that. He said he wants to help folks recover and rebuild after these incidents of gun violence. And I think treating it like a natural disaster is kind of on par with just the level of carnage that we are seeing across our country. It is it, it might as well be a disaster. The, the, the only ridiculous part is that those are all natural. We can't stop those. We can stop this one. And so I appreciate the sentiment of treating this like a natural disaster, but this is a man-made disaster. And it, maybe it's yet to be seen as to whether this can be handled or treated in the same way, and that will be effective. But I'm glad that this office is trying that. And President Biden also called shootings 
quote, the ultimate superstorm ripping through communities, end quote. And I thought that was really powerful. The third mandate of this new office is to identify new executive actions that President Biden can take within his legal authority to reduce gun violence. So this gets to the point that I was making earlier about kind of the separation of powers and how the executive is kind of limited by the Constitution and constrained by the Supreme Court in what the executive can unilaterally do. So while it would be nice if Congress could legislate on these issues because they can't, President Biden is stuck using what powers he does have to try to make some meaningful impact. And now this White House Office of Gun Violence Prevention's fourth and kind of final mandate, at least that Biden expanded upon in his press conference, is to expand the president's coalition of partners in states and cities across America to strengthen our laws and give us more hope. I think it's worth reminding you all that the creation of this office and the lack of specificity of some of these executive actions or the mandates of this new office exist solely because it is impossible to get common sense gun violence legislation through Congress. I was looking at some data from the Pew Research Center from September of 2023, so this month, and I wanted to share some of these statistics as we talk about the fact that Biden has to take these executive actions because Congress refuses to act. So six in 10 US adults say gun violence is a very big problem in the country today, and that is up nine percentage points from 2022. And looking ahead, 62% of Americans say they expect the level of gun violence to increase over the next five years. And that is compared to just 7% that expect the level of gun violence to decrease. That is a staggering margin, 62 to 7% of people. Look at the news. Look at the way our laws are being created. Look at those folks that we have in Congress. Look at those folks we have in the White House, and they say they are doing nothing to solve this problem, and 62% of them believe that because of that, the problem of gun violence is going to only get worse. This research also shows that a majority of Americans, 61% of them, say that it is too easy to legally obtain a gun in this country. And now another 30% say the ease of legally obtaining a gun is about right, and 9% say it is too hard to get a gun. Non-gun owners in this metric are nearly twice as likely as gun owners to say it is too easy to legally obtain a gun, and that is 73% to 38%. Meanwhile, gun owners are more than twice as likely as non-owners to say the ease of obtaining a gun is about right, and that's 48% to 20%. So while there are some broad consensus issues that people across ideological spectrums agree with, there are some partisan and demographic differences that exist when it comes to questions about gun violence and the future of guns in our country. So while 86% of Democrats say that it is too easy to obtain a gun legally, only 34% of Republicans say the same. Most urban, being 72%, and suburban, 63% dwellers, say it's too easy to legally obtain a gun. Rural residents are a bit more divided, and they say that about 40%, 47% say it is too easy, 41% say it's about right, and 11% say it's too hard. The Pew Research data also shows that about 6 in 10 U.S. adults favor stricter gun laws, which I think is really important. That's 58% favoring stricter gun laws. Now, I know there's a lot of nuance in that. My version of stricter gun laws and your version of stricter gun laws might look like two different things. But we can at least agree that something stricter needs to be put in place because the problem that we have is avoidable, it is fixable, it is man-made, and it is nonsensical 
that we cannot come up with a solution for it. This Pew Research data also shows that majorities of U.S. adults in both partisan coalitions somewhat or strongly favor two policies that would restrict gun access. The first of those is preventing those with mental illnesses from purchasing guns. That has support amongst 88% of Republicans and 89% of Democrats. That is an overwhelming majority of both, of both, I would say, primary ideologies. And the other one is increasing the minimum age of buying a gun to 21 years old. And this is supported by 69% of Republicans and 90% of Democrats. Personally, barring extenuating circumstances, I personally don't see much of a reason for someone between the ages of 18 and 21 years old to own a semi-automatic weapon for any reason. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't extenuating circumstances out there that may justify this. I, I'm open to those conversations and that idea, but I think we should just have a more rigorous process for vetting those purchasing weapons between the ages of 18 and 21. We can't create rules for the exceptions. We have to create rules and have exceptions. And so I would rather the limited circumstances in which an 18 to 21 year old genuinely needs a firearm, whether that is for self-defense or you know, sport hunting, whatever it may be. I would rather we take those on a case-by-case -case basis rather than saying everyone can have them, including all these people who probably shouldn't. So I agree that with, you know, 69% of Republicans and 90% of Democrats and saying that increasing the minimum age for buying a gun to 21 is not that wild of an idea. I mean, also, majorities in both parties oppose allowing people to carry concealed firearms without a permit, and that has a 60% kind of approval amongst Republicans and 91% approval amongst Democrats. And that feels pretty common sense to me. I think but this is also a nuanced issue. Kind of in today's day and age, so many people have been impacted by gun violence that you know, while I don't support concealed carry, the idea of open carry can be pretty jarring for people. If you're just walking around a store and you see someone with an assault rifle on their back or even just a pistol on their side, how can you, as someone who has been impacted by gun violence or perhaps knows someone who has been impacted by gun violence, look at that and not feel at least some form of terror of wondering what that person possibly feels they need this gun for in a Target, in a Walmart, whatever it may be. And so there's these these areas that just achieve broad bipartisan support, and yet Congress can't even legislate in those areas. And so folks like President Biden and Vice President Harris are forced to use executive power as much as they can to try and curb this problem. But the real answer is that legislation is going to be needed. It's very hard, very, very hard to achieve radically new things just through executive power that, you know, things that are not outlined in the Constitution, such as the president's, you know, military powers can sometimes be an exception to that rule. But I digress. That's a whole constitutional law argument. So now that I've talked through kind of what this office will be responsible for, I want to go through some of my thoughts. I think this is a really, really great step in the right direction. It can't be the last step. And so we can't hang our hats on this office and say, well, you know, there's an office of of gun violence prevention in the White House and three people work there and it's headed by the vice president. So gun violence is solved. I hate to tell you that that's not going to be the case. And so this is a really, really important step, but it can't be the end. We cannot let this conversation fade just because there was an office created. I know I, at least personally, will continue screaming this message from the rooftops, regardless of who's listening. So if you are still listening, thanks for hanging in there. I really appreciate it. I, I think if you are passionate about this topic or you care about this topic, you should care about this too. You know, we can't just 
be complacent in allowing guns to continue to permeate throughout our society. I think this is a big, big issue for young people. And this office represents a bit of hope in that sense. This is, um, the American people need some form of hope. And I think this office can serve as a portion of that. That was exciting to finally talk about something um, a little more recent. Not that, you know, this Bruin was certainly recent in the kind of how did we get here series, but talking about something that was just announced last week and being able to go through that and the data that I feel is most impactful in assessing whether this office will be impactful in its work, I think is really important. Once again, we can be found on both Twitter and Instagram at the GVP cast. We welcome your feedback and I look forward to talking with you all again soon. Until then, this is Chad signing off for the GVP cast.